Well, we have been walking through, this semester we've been walking through anthropology, and, uh, and then we are about to transition into talking about uh, covenants as we kind of begin to explore God's plan of redemption. But before we get there, we need to understand what we are redeemed from. And so, really, to understand anthropology, that is the doctrine of man, who is mankind, all of the things that we've been talking about over the past uh, a couple of weeks and so forth, then we really need to understand this topic that we began last week, which is homartiology. Homartiology is the doctrine of sin, an understanding. What does the Bible say about sin? Last week, Zach came and he gave kind of this more full-orbed understanding of what sin is, the origins of sin, and those sorts of things. What we want to do today, though, is we want to really dive down in particular on the topic of depravity. And so what we want to talk about today is called total depravity. Total depravity. And, uh, and so let me tell you first what that doesn't mean, because oftentimes when we say the phrase total depravity, people have this misconception in terms of what we're talking about. And so a few things that it doesn't mean. Whenever we talk about total depravity, that doesn't mean that man is unable or unwilling to do any good uh, at all. So every day you see examples of good, even people who are unregenerate, even people who have no affections for Jesus Christ whatsoever, they're able to do some sort of good thing, even very bad people are able to do good things. They give to charity, they help a little old lady cross the street or whatever it might be, they volunteer for an organization. So that's not what we're talking about. When we talk about total depravity, we don't mean that man is unable or unwilling to do any sort of social good whatsoever. That's one of the things that we don't mean. We also don't mean that all men are absolutely in all ways as bad as they possibly could be. Right? We could be worse the Bible just says that we couldn't be worse off, all right? And so it's been said, actually Zach quoted it uh, earlier today, uh, that you might be a shark, you might be a guppy, but either way you're still a fish. That's kind of the idea there of, uh, of total depravity. And so not that all men are absolutely and always as bad as they possibly could be. Uh, you could be worse, but not worse off. And then the last thing that we don't mean is that all men in all senses are as bad as uh, all others, all right? So I think we would all, if we were to list out who are some of the most wicked men in, uh, in history or wicked women in history, throw out some names. Hitler, Jezebel, yeah, Nero, Pol Pot. I mean, you could go on and on with all of these uh, different examples. You could name serial killers and all of these sorts of things. Uh, and so certainly there's a sense in which uh, all of these people that we just mentioned are worse than us in some sense. But as Zach mentioned last week, if there are degrees of sin, we talked about that, there are degrees of sin, and if there are degrees of sin, then we could say in some sense that there's also degrees of uh, sinners. That's not what we're talking about when we talk about total depravity. All of those are kind of looking at the issue of depravity in relation to other people, right? And that's not what we mean by total depravity. When we, what we mean by total depravity is looking at our depravity in relation to a uh, holy God, and so there, there might be this difference, there is a difference between us in this room, hopefully, and a serial killer like Jeffrey Dahmer or John Wayne Gacy or something like that. Hopefully there is this different, that, difference that exists between us, but that is a finite difference. Whereas between any of us and God, there is an infinite difference uh, between us. There's an infinite difference between all men and, uh, and between God, Christ excluded, obviously. 
And, uh, and so because of this potential confusion, because some people misunderstand what we mean by total depravity, they think that you mean uh, that uh, everyone is as bad as they possibly could be or something like that. Because of that confusion, a lot of people don't use the phrase total depravity. So let me give you another few terms. It's on your sheet there. Another few terms that people sometimes use for the same concept, the same sort of idea. Some people, instead of saying total depravity, they might say total or absolute inability. In fact, uh, the book that we often recommend is a systematic theology by Wayne Grudem. Uh, it says, he uses uh, uh, this language of inability, and he says, man's total lack of spiritual good and inability to do good before God, often referred to as total depravity. Uh, another thing that you might see is radical depravity, radical depravity or radical corruption or pervasive depravity. There's all these different names. I don't care about the name so much. I care about the concept. And that's what we're going to talk about today, the concept. But we'll use the language of total depravity because that's kind of the historical uh, terminology that has been used. But before we really dive into that, I want to uh, talk about why is this important. It might, if you've been coming to, uh, to services over the past six weeks or so, it might feel like, when are we going to get out of the condemnation? That's all we've talked about for literally six weeks in a row, starting in Romans 1, verse 18. Uh, we have done six weeks in a row on condemnation. Uh, by the way, we have two more weeks of condemnation in our, in our services as well. So why are we doing this? Why not just, when do we get to the good news? You might uh, be thinking, and, uh, and so I want to talk a little bit about why we're taking a little bit of time and really focusing on this issue of, uh, of depravity. At the beginning of his uh, kind of classic work, uh, The Institutes of the Christian Religion by John Calvin, he says this. He says that all wisdom, all true knowledge consists of two things. That is, in order to, to really be wise, you need to know two things in particular. You need to have a knowledge of God. You need to have a knowledge of yourself. A knowledge of God and a knowledge of yourself. And here's what's interesting. If you miss the mark on total depravity, if you misunderstand the doctrine of sin, then you will miss both of those. You will misunderstand who you are. You will misunderstand who God is. We like to think of ourselves as being essentially good or at least uh, morally neutral. In fact, if you were to ask somebody, uh, you go around uh, after class today, how are you doing? What's the response you're going to get? Probably good, great, fine. There's, a, uh, there's even a deacon here that if you ask him, he said, if I was doing any better, I'd be twins. Lance Walker. But uh, that's what we tend to think. We tend to think we're good, we're okay. And we tend to think of that not only in terms of how we're doing today, but in general, we tend to have this higher view of ourselves than, uh, than we should. Biblically, though, we're not good. We're not even morally neutral. We're bad. And not in kind of a Michael Jackson circa 1987 sort of sense. No, we're wicked. We're evil. We're depraved. That's what we want to talk about today. So if we misunderstand this, we misunderstand who we are, and that then leads to a corrupted understanding of who God is. Because we don't understand what we've been saved from. We don't understand the, the depths of His grace, the depths of mercy, uh, the reality of uh, the gospel. You're kind of like, you ever seen uh, Monty Python uh, and the Search for the Holy Grail? You ever seen that? There's a scene there where there's a knight that's, uh, that's in this battle, and he has his arms cut off and his legs cut off. And what does he say? It's only a flesh wound, right? Well, that's kind of like how we are whenever we minimize sin. We're sitting there, 
laying there with our arms cut off, with our legs cut off, absolutely no hope whatsoever. We're bleeding out, and we think, ah, it's merely a flesh wound. So as a result, if we misunderstand this, who we really are, we misunderstand what God has done for us as He saves us. It's not like He merely hands us a Band-Aid. Someone hands you a Band-Aid, you say thank you, but that's it. You're not really all that grateful. Think, contrast that. Someone hands you a Band-Aid when you have a little paper cut or something like that. Contrast that with someone jumps into a river to pull you out as you're drowning and then they give you CPR, and then they pay all your medical bills. The amount of gratitude that you experience in that moment is profoundly different. So if we minimize, if we misunderstand what the Bible says about our innate depravity, then we'll misunderstand God's goodness and His grace and the mercy of the gospel. And so that's why it is that we are talking about these things, not because we want to just be obsessed with how bad we are, but because we can't understand how good God is until we understand how bad we are. So I want to begin by talking about how does Adam's sin affect us? How does what Adam did, how does that affect us? And so this is often called the doctrine of original sin. In order to understand depravity, to some degree you need to understand this topic of original sin. There's really been two historical kind of uh, ends of the spectrum when it comes to the issue of um, original sin. Again, original sin is not just Adam's original sin, but how Adam's original sin has affected uh, his progeny, his, uh, his ancestors, and so forth. Uh, so there's two main views uh, that are contrasted in relation to how uh, original sin is to be understood. The first one is called Pelagianism, and the second one is called Augustinianism. All right? Pelagianism and Augustinianism, there's little nuances in between, but in general, those are the two main positions. So Pelagianism, we've talked about before. If you remember, Zach talked about Pelagius before and had everybody go boo every time that he said uh, Pelagius. Pelagius was a heretic. He was actually condemned as a, uh, a heretic. He was a British monk, and, uh, and he rejected the idea of original sin that's inherited from Adam. To Pelagius, he had this idea that man is born in a state of moral kind of neutrality. He's born in a state of innocence, kind of tabula rasa, a blank slate, if you will. So for him, sin is not something that's uh, inherited. It's something that's imitated. Sin is not something uh, that we get by nature. It's something that we get by nurture. We grow up in an environment of sin, and so therefore uh, we sin not because we're born sinners, but simply because we see sin around us. So Adam's big sin, the way that Adam's sin has affected humanity is it gives us an example. It gives us an example of sin, and therefore we follow in the example of Adam. But it's not something that's inherited. It's not something that's passed down. It's not something that is sort of, there's not a genealogical principle to it or anything uh, like that. Man is essentially born uh, good or at least morally neutral but Adam has set a bad example. So sin uh, is environmental. And, uh, and then for Pelagius, Christ now has set a better example. He set a good example. He set an example of someone who could be faithful. And, uh, and so therefore, we can simply look. We're looking at two different examples. Do I want to be like Adam or do I want to be like Jesus? For Pelagius, that's the decision that we have to make. Sin is not something that has uh, absolutely inherently affected us by nature. It's something that is environmental. And his big opponent is uh, Augustine, uh, Augustine of Hippo. And, uh, and so thankfully, 
the Augustinian theology won out, and so we get this idea of original sin. Sin is not merely something that's imitated. It's something that is inherited. It's something that's passed down to us. It's something that we are not merely by nurture, not, really, not merely because we're raised in an environment of sin, but because we have sin within us. Sin is not something external that then is added uh, or, or that we somehow imbibe and it becomes a part of us. No, it's something that we're born with and we work it out uh, from within. And so Augustinian theology wins out. Pelagianism is actually condemned as a heresy uh, in a couple of uh, uh, councils in the early 5th century-ish. Uh, but by the medieval period, Catholic theology had been drifting back towards Pelagianism or uh, kind of a semi-Pelagianism uh, or something uh, like that in which salvation was completed by God's grace, but it's kind of commenced by free will. So man has this sort of, uh, this, uh, they called it oftentimes an island of righteousness. There's one little aspect of mankind that's not affected by the fall, and that is able to incline uh, toward uh, God. But anyway, that, uh, that's Pelagianism. Uh, and then on the other hand, you have Augustinianism, Augustinian theology, which is that man is born with a sin nature and is in need of grace to overcome. Man is born with a sin nature and is in need of grace to overcome. This is not only the theology of Augustine, but this is also the theology of the Reformation, which is part of the reason why the Reformation is such a, uh, a light shining in the darkness of medieval Catholic theology is because it's this renewal, this restoration of Augustinian theology and the emphasis on the depravity of man, not for the sake of just emphasizing the depravity of man, but in order for us to see more clearly the grace of God. Sola gratia is one of the, uh, the confessions of the Reformation, grace uh, alone. And so this is the theology of the Reformation. But quickly, the Reformation kind of split into these two main camps. You have Calvinism and you have Arminianism, Calvinism and uh, Arminianism. And so the Arminians come up with uh, what they call the five articles of remonstrance. I don't know how to pronounce that word. I never have. Remonstrance, something like that. The Calvinists responded with a synod of Dort, and that kind of lays the foundations for what would be known of the five, as the five points of Calvinism. So if you've ever heard of the five points of Calvinism, total depravity is the first of them. This begins to kind of lay the foundations, although that phrase is not actually used. English wasn't used at that time uh, either. But this is what the synod of Dort said as it relates to the issue of depravity. They said, all men are conceived in sin and are by nature children of wrath, incapable of any saving good, prone to evil, dead in sin, and in bondage thereto. And without the regenerating, regenerating grace of the Holy Spirit, they are neither able nor willing to turn to God, to reform the depravity of their nature, nor to dispose themselves for reformation. All right, so this is uh, the response of the Calvinists to the uh, Arminians' view of, uh, of sin. Here's what the, the Arminian uh, camp was saying. So though mankind in their view, is as bad off as in the Calvinistic sort of view, yet God offers this thing called provenient grace, provenient grace to all men such that there is this renewal of the freedom of the will. So according to the uh, Arminian view, there is this uh, sense in which all of mankind is plagued by sin. It's something that is inherited. It's something that affects every uh, bit of us, and yet God, in His grace, gives man a little bit of freedom to incline toward God. 
That's the uh, idea of uh, Arminianism. And, uh, and so it's kind of like the idea of prevenient grace is the idea that you kind of lift this kitty up to a saucer. You can't actually make it dr- uh, drink, but you actually give it the opportunity there. That's what Arminians say, is that God has lifted up all mankind and brought them to the place where they're able to drink. They just have to freely choose to do so uh, or not. And so the Arminians taught this view called inherited corruption, inherited corruption, uh, that we don't inherit guilt, we inherit a sinful nature. That's what we inherit from Adam. We don't inherit Adam's guilt so much. We inherit uh, just the the fact that uh, we have this sinful nature. That has been passed on to us genealogically. And uh, and so there's a number of passages that do teach this. Psalm 51.5, Behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me. Psalm 58.3, the wicked are estranged from the womb. They go astray from birth, speaking lies. Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. So this is the Arminian view, uh, this view of inherited corruption. Now, the Calvinists absolutely agree with the idea of inherited corruption, but they... Uh, uh, disagreed with Arminians on two different fronts, at least. One is that they rejected the idea of provenient grace. They, they said there's no passage of Scripture that says that God's grace gives every single person an opportunity. In fact, the Bible seems to emphasize the fact that God's election uh, does the exact opposite. God's election uh, is shown to multiply the grace of His freedom that God has free will rather than us having free will. And so uh, that was one area that the Calvinists disagreed with the Arminians. Another area that they disagreed is they said, yes, amen, we absolutely believe in inherited corruption. But not only inherited corruption, also this idea of inherited uh, guilt. Not only do we inherit uh, the sinful nature from Adam, but we actually inherit guilt from Adam. The guilt of sin from Adam. There's a number of passages that teach this. Most of them actually in uh, Romans 5, and, uh, and so uh, we'll be there in a few months. But uh, Romans 5, 18 through 19, Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as the, uh, by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous. And so the, uh, the Scripture here is basically talking about these two different camps, in Adam and in Christ. In Adam, everyone that's in Adam inherits the things that are related to Adam, not only a sin nature, but also guilt and condemnation and shame and death and all of these sorts of things. In Adam, those who are, are in Christ, uh, as a contrast to that, those who are in Christ inherit all the things that are related to Christ. Righteousness and justification and life and joy and uh, all of these sorts of things. Romans 5.12 says a similar idea. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man and death through sin, and so death spread to all men because all sinned, not just corruption, but sin actually is passed on. And so, uh, again, the, uh, the, the Calvinist position is, yes, we inherit corruption, just like the Arminians say, but we also inherit guilt. We inherit the guilt of Adam. So then that might bring up the question, well, how is that, uh, how is that fair? Isn't that unfair? Isn't it unfair to say that you or I might inherit guilt from Adam? 
I wasn't there in the garden. Why does what some naked guy did with some fruit in a garden, why does that have any effect on, uh, on me now thousands and thousands of years later? That's a, uh, that's a good question. So let me give you a few different ways that theologians have kind of responded to this objection over, uh, over the past a uh, few uh, centuries or so. So uh, a number of things that might help us to understand how is it fair of God that we also inherit, not a merely corruption, but we inherit guilt from what Adam did. And so we've talked about a number of these before here in Theological Quipping. The first one being that Adam stands for a larger people than himself. Adam stands for a larger people than himself. I think Zach mentioned this last week, actually. Imagine that uh, the U.S. sends an ambassador to a foreign country, and that ambassador acts in some way that is just profoundly shameful and embarrassing, well, that affects not merely that ambassador, that affects his family, and that affects, indeed, the entire country, right? In some sense, we all might be punished if, uh, you know, if uh, there is a delegate that's sent over to North Korea and he uh, just infuriates uh, the, uh, the leadership over there, and there is some sort of war that breaks out, it has consequences for you and for me. So that is one way that we can understand uh, how it's not unfair for, uh, for Adam to have sinned and for us to have inherited that guilt, because Adam stands for a larger people than, uh, than himself. Adam was basically humanity's ambassador before God. And Adam walks up to God and slaps him in the face. And therefore, there's consequences for the rest of humanity because Adam represented humanity poorly before God. So that's the first one, that Adam stands for a larger group of people than himself. We tend to think individualistically. The Bible tends to think much more corporately uh, than we do. A second one, the Bible sees all humans as linked to Adam physically. The Bible sees all humans as linked to Adam physically because all humans ultimately come from one set of parents. We're all linked to Adam genetically. In a sense, we were all in Adam when he sinned. Augustine said this. This is a quote uh, that, uh, that he wrote on this. God, the author of nature, but not of sin, created man upright, but he, having through his own will became uh, depraved and condemned, propagated, depraved, and condemned offspring, for we were all in that one man since we were all that one man who lapsed into sin through that woman who was made from him previous to transgression. The particular form in which we were to live as individuals had not been created and assigned to us man by man, but that seminal nature was in existence from which we were to be propagated. So the Bible sees all humans as linked to Adam physically, and therefore that's another reason that this is not unfair. Third, all humanity rebelled against God in Genesis 3. So all humanity is condemned by God flowing out of Genesis 3. How many people are alive whenever they eat of the fruit? Two. How many people eat of the fruit? Two, right? So two people are alive, two people eat. All humanity is condemned there in uh, the garden. And since, since there were only two people around at this time and both rebelled against God, then literally all of humanity disobeyed God. Therefore, humanity is born in light of this corruption. A fourth thing to keep in mind as we talk about this is we're all condemned not only because of what we've inherited, but also due to our own sin. Though we are born with the guilt of Adam, yet we spend our lives 
basically justifying God's condemnation of us by the way that we live our lives as we actually act out of our sinful nature and produce acts uh, of sin. And, uh, and so the reason that someone goes to hell, the reason that someone is condemned, is, not, is never only because of Adam's transgression, but it's also because of our individual transgression uh, as well. And the last two, I think, are the most helpful. Why is this not unfair of God uh, to punish us? Uh, the last two, I think, are the most helpful. First, if it's unfair for God to count you as guilty in Adam, then it's also unfair for Him to count you as righteous in Christ. So the, 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 the fairness razor kind of cuts both ways. Only if Adam represents you in the garden can Christ represent you in Golgotha. So if you want fairness, then you get condemnation. What we don't want is fairness. We want God's grace. We want mercy. So if it's unfair for God to count you Adam as guilty in Adam, it's also unfair for Him to count you as righteous in Christ. And then lastly, we simply uh, at this uh, juncture probably come to a point where we say, I can't fully understand it, but I have to confess that all God does is good and just. Jesus and Jesus alone is the only one who has ever suffered unjustly at the hands of God. Jesus is the only one who has ever suffered unjustly at the hands of God. All that God does is good and right. And so there are things that we might not understand about it, about His justice, uh, but that doesn't mean that we can uh, deny it. So let's talk a little bit about total depravity in particular. We've talked about original sin, how that has uh, affected uh, mankind that's been passed down to us, where we, uh, whereby we inherit not merely corruption, although we do inherit corruption, we inherit a sin nature, but we also inherit Adamic guilt. And so let's talk a little bit about this total depravity in particular. So there are a number of ways that we can, we, we looked at before misconceptions of the word total that doesn't mean that every person is as bad as they possibly could be or anything like that. So what do we mean when we say total depravity? And there's at least five different senses in which you could say that depravity is total. The first one is you could say, well, depravity affects every single person. In other words, the total population of the world is affected by uh, depravity. There's a number of passages that we'll just read off on each of these. Uh, just to show um, how uh, comprehensive the Bible is in this picture. Psalm 14, 2-3, The Lord looks down from heaven on the children of man to see if there are any who understand, who seek after God. They have all turned aside. Together they have become corrupt. There is none who does good, not even one. Romans 3.23, For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. 1 Kings 8.46, If they sin against you, for there is no one who does not sin. Psalm 143.2, enter not into your judgment, enter not into judgment with your servant, for no one living is righteous before you. 1 John 1.8, if we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. Romans 3, 9 through 11, we'll talk about that next week. What then, are we Jews any better off? No, not at all, for we have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin. As it is written, none is righteous, no, not one. No one understands, no one seeks for God. Romans 1.18 that we uh, preached a, a few weeks back. For the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. So human uh, depravity affects every single human. That's one sense in which you could say that our depravity is total. 
It affects the total population of mankind. There's another sense in which you could say that uh, depravity is total, and that is our rebellion is totally deserving of, uh, of punishment. Do you like what Tim did? Depravity, like totally. Our rebellion is totally deserving of punishment. Ephesians 2.3, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Matthew 25.46, and these will go into way in eternal punishment, but the righteous into eternal life. The Bible talks about the wages of sin is death. Sin demands a response, and so sin against an infinite being demands an infinite or an eternal response. So our rebellion is totally deserving of punishment. Another sense in which you could say that depravity is total is that it totally affects every relationship and dimension of life. We talked about this a lot when we talked about, uh, when we walked through the book of Ephesians, that there's uh, these different dimensions to the fall. That what happens in the fall is there's this fracture, and this fracture kind of splits off into four different fissures, uh, four different divisions. It's called the fourfold division of the fall. That man not only experiences separation from God, that's the first division. There is this division that exists between man and God, whereas before they were in harmony, uh, God could walk with man in the garden. Well, now there's this division. Not only is there division between man and God, but there's also a division between man and his wife. Where there's now conflict that's introduced in the marital relationship, whereas before uh, Adam and Eve knew no conflict, they knew no tension, they knew no strife, they knew no arguing over uh, whatever the things that uh, husband and wife argue about. That's the second division of the fall. There's also a division uh, that exists between man and his fellow man, Cain and Abel, struggling uh, with each other. There is murder, there is rape, there is all of these sorts of things. There is, uh, that's the third uh, division. And then the fourth division is between man and creation, that no longer will creation yield its fruit willingly, but by the sweat of your brow you shall work the ground. And, uh, and so that's another sense in which uh, depravity is total. It's totally affected every relationship and dimension of life. Everything that you do, it's the opposite kind of the Midas touch. Everything you touch turns to gold. Uh, in essence, everything you touch begins to corrupt, begins to be defaced and defiled. Everything around you, every relationship that you have, even the relationship that you have with yourself, it's uh, almost a kind of a spiritual schizophrenia that takes place in mankind with the fall. So that's a third dimension uh, or meaning of de- uh, total depravity. I think the last two are probably the most traditional understandings of what we mean by total depravity. Uh, Fourth, in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. This is an important one. In his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. Listen to Romans 14, 23. But whoever has doubts is condemned if he eats, because the eating is not from faith. Paul could have stopped there and made his point, but he says this next uh, sentence that is uh, huge and has huge theological implications. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. For whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Mankind innately doesn't have faith. 
So everything mankind does, in a sense, is sin. Even the person who helps the lady cross the street, even the person who gives to charity, there's always some sort of pride or lust or greed or whatever it might be. There's always something underlining that, undergirding that that is sinful. Whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. Hebrews 11.6 says something similar. And without faith, it's impossible to please Him. That's God. For whoever would draw near to God must believe that He exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. Romans 7, 18, For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. So in his total rebellion, everything man does is sin. That's another sense in which our depravity is uh, total so God is not pleased, even, as, even if there are externally good actions, God is not ultimately pleased with those externally good actions. The same way that you, when your kid cleans their room while screaming obscenities at you, is not pleasing to you, even though you ask them to clean their room. They're doing the right action, but they have the wrong motivation behind it. And so that would be considered sinful. Likewise, everything that we do in our state of being in Adam and is, uh, is like Adam's sin. And then the last sense in which depravity is total is it's pervasive. It, affect, it affects absolutely every part of us, your heart, your mind, your will, uh, your soul. There's no part of you that's left untouched or uncorrupted uh, by sin. So I want to just look quickly at, uh, at this uh, in... Uh, uh, in the light of uh, seven different things that the Bible says about us. And so you have that, I think, listed in your notes under the devastating depiction of depravity. I like alliteration. So, number one, this is, uh, this is all part of a subpart of this depravity is pervasive. This is, I think, one of the most important things to recognize about how depravity is total. It's total in the fact that it affects every part of you. There's no part of you that remains untouched uncorrupted by sin. So the first thing, we have darkened minds. Our minds are darkened. Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. 1 Corinthians, the natural person does not accept the things of the Spirit of God, for they are folly to him, and he is not able to understand them because they are spiritually discerned. Ephesians 2, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind. And we're by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. Ephesians 4, Now this I say and testify in the Lord that you must no longer walk as the Gentiles do in the futility of their minds. They are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Not only do we have darkened minds, but we also have darkened or deceitful hearts. Romans 1, for although they knew God, they did not honor Him as God or give thanks to Him, but they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Ephesians 4, they are darkened in their understanding, alienated from the life of God because of the ignorance that is in them due to their hardness of heart. Jeremiah 17, 9, the heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? Not only do we have darkened minds and darkened and deceitful hearts, but we're blind, we're deaf to spiritual reality. We don't have eyes to see or ears to hear. 2 Corinthians 4, and even if our gospel is veiled, it is veiled to those who are perishing. In their case, the God of this world has blinded the minds of the unbelievers to keep them from seeing the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God. 
You'll see uh, in that text even there's a contrast. It goes on to speak of uh, Christ shining uh, the light of the glory uh, of God in the, uh, the hearts of, uh, of those uh, whom he has chosen and drawn to himself. And the, the imagery there is the same as in creation. There is nothing. The earth is uh, formless and void and darkness uh, was all there was, and God says, let there be light. That's the same way that salvation takes place. There's not a little flicker that God just simply adds a little kindling to. It's not like the sun was this little bitty star, and then God added a little bit of heat to it, and a little bit of hydrogen or whatever it might be, and it became this big star. There was nothing. There was darkness, and God spoke into it. And, uh, and so, But we're blind, we're deaf to spiritual reality. Matthew 13, 15, For this people's heart has grown dull, and with their ears they can barely hear, and with their eyes they have closed, lest they should see with their eyes and hear with their ears and understand with their heart and turn, and I would heal them. Not only do we have darkened minds and darkened hearts, we're blind and deaf, but we love sin and we hate God. John three nineteen through 20, And this is the judgment, the light has come into the world, and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. For everyone who does wicked things hates the light and does not come to the light lest his work should be exposed. In John's gospel, the light is not just some sort of ethereal thing. It's not the thing that you uh, flip in the morning in order that you can see. The light is Jesus Christ. He's in effect saying that we hate Jesus. We hate God's word. We hate God himself. And we love our sin. We don't merely hate one, but we love the other. So we darkened minds, darkened hearts. We're blind. We're deaf. We love sin. We hate God. We're enslaved to sin. John, or John 8, 34, Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, everyone who practices sin is a slave to sin. Titus 3, 3, For we ourselves were once foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. So we have darkened minds, darkened hearts, blind and deaf, love sin, hate God. We're enslaved and we're hostile toward God. And you who once were alienated and hostile in mind, doing evil deeds, Colossians 1. Romans 8, for the mind that is set on the flesh is hostile to God, for it does not submit to God's law. Indeed, it cannot. And not only do we have darkened minds, darkened hearts, not only are we blind and deaf, not only do we love sin and hate God, not only are we enslaved to sin, not only are we hostile toward God, the Bible says that we are dead. We are dead. Again, it's not merely this paper cut. It's not merely that we're bleeding out. We are already dead. We've already bled out. Our heart has stopped. Our brain has stopped. There's no activity whatsoever. We are dead, Ephesians 2. And you were dead and the trespasses and sins in which you once walked, following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work, and the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath like the rest of mankind. In Colossians 2, And you who were dead in your trespasses and the uncircumcision of your flesh, God made alive together with him, having forgiven us all our trespasses. So now imagine all of those things are true of all of us. Imagine everything that we just read is true of all of us. And God, our enemy in the flesh, the one that we're hostile towards, the one that we hate as we love our sin, He offers us a pardon. He offers us pardon. If only we will surrender. 
Who here has ever seen a movie where the hero is offered a, a surrender or something like that, and he says, death first? That's what we do. That's what we do in our sin. We don't respond to God's offer of pardon with humility and gratitude. We respond by showing Him a certain finger. We respond by screaming obscenities at Him. We respond by lashing out at Him in our sin. That is our response. That's what natural man says to God. The nature of sin so twists and corrupts our affections and our perception of reality that we're totally unwilling and unable to repent and believe unless unless our eyes are first enlightened. Our eyes are opened. Our ears are opened. Our hearts are opened. There is a new nature that is given. This is called regeneration, where we have new affections. And those affections, this new nature, this new heart, doesn't find God to be unappealing. It's inclined towards Him. And so we, uh, we respond to Him. But unless we're given that, we can't see, we can't hear, we can't think, we can't love, or we can't do anything else correctly. In summary, when we talk about total depravity, total depravity means that apart from any enabling grace of God, apart from God's grace in our life, our hardness and our rebellion against God is total Everything we do in this rebellion is sin. Our inability to submit to God, to reform ourselves is total, and we're therefore totally deserving of eternal punishment, which means that salvation is by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, to the glory of God alone. So then that might lead to the question, what of free will? And we'll end uh, with this. What of free will? Do we have free will? If all of these things are true, if we really have these hearts that are hardened, if we won't respond correctly uh, to God, if our minds are darkened, if our hearts are darkened, if we're enslaved, all of these sorts of things, do we have free will? What does that mean? What well, depends on what you mean by free will. There's a sense in which uh, we would say that we have free will. There's a sense in which the Bible would say we do not have free will. So let me give you a few thoughts that I think are helpful. And just as we process through these, these are just four kind of thoughts. There might not be much transition between them or anything like that. So the first one is we're always enslaved to something. This is a biblical principle you have to understand. We're always enslaved to something. We're never a master. We're always a slave, either to Christ or to sin. The Bible is telling the story of two different kingdoms, and we are not the king in any of the kingdoms, either of the kingdoms. It's either Christ or Satan. These are the two kingdoms that are set up. You never get to be the king. You're either a slave to uh, sin or you're a slave to Christ. That's the language that we see throughout the Scriptures. Paul gladly receives the fact that he is a bondservant, a bondservant of Jesus Christ, a willing slave of Jesus Christ. So you are always enslaved uh, to something. That's the first thing uh, to recognize. The second thing to recognize is there are different types of freedom that we want to uh, distinguish most people, when most people think of freedom, they think of what's called libertarian freedom. That is the freedom to choose the opposite of whatever. You chose Coke, you cho- could have cho- chosen Sprite or whatever the opposite of Coke is. Uh, you choose to wear a sweater, you could have chosen the opposite of a sweater, whatever that is, a sweater vest or something uh, like that. You're free to, to eat toast or an English muffin or whatever it is that you want to do. That's what most people think of as libertarian freedom, kind of the, the freedom to have uh, uh, kind of the opposite, uh, the opposite desire that you uh, have. 
kind of the, the, the freedom to have it your way, whatever that way is. But that type of freedom, we need to understand, in light of what we just talked about, that kind of freedom doesn't exist when it comes to salvations for all the reasons that we have just discussed. For all the reasons that we have just discussed, that type of freedom doesn't exist. You don't have the freedom to choose contrary to your nature. You have the freedom to do what's called freedom of choice. You have the freedom to do what you will. As, uh, as uh, it was said, as Wesley would say in The Princess Bride, as you wish. That's the kind of freedom that you have. You have the freedom to do as you wish. You have the freedom to do as you desire. But what did we just see? We just saw over and over and over again, what do you desire? You desire sin. You don't desire God. So yes, you have freedom when it comes to, am I going to wear the red shirt or the green shirt? Or am I going to wear these pants or these pants? But when it comes to salvation... Do you have freedom in that sense? No, you have the freedom to do as you desire. And what do you desire? You desire sin. You don't desire God, which is why the, uh, the idea of regeneration is so important because it means that you get a new heart, and that new heart, therefore, can desire God, can desire something other than, uh, than sin. And so let's talk a little bit about just kind of redemptive history from the garden or from creation all the way to uh, consummation. So human beings as created, they had freedom to do good or evil, right? They could do good, they could do evil. They could not sin, they could sin. They chose to sin. As a result of that, human being has, uh, hu- humanity has now fallen, and we no longer exist in this state whereby we can do good or evil. In our fallen condition, in Adam, all we can do is evil. We have freedom to do evil. We can choose which forms of evil we want to do. But everything that we do, everything that does not come from faith is sin. Without faith, it's impossible to please God. 1 Corinthians uh, chapter 10, that we are to do all things for the glory of God. Those who are unregenerate don't do those sorts of things. And so human beings have fallen, have forfeited the freedom to do good, but retained the freedom to do evil. But human beings as regenerate, when, when we're born again, when we're justified, we therefore get back a measure of our freedom to do good while retaining still our freedom to do evil. None of us are perfectly free from the effects of sin uh, in this room. So human beings have regenerate, as regenerate, have restored freedom to do good or evil, and then human beings as glorified will no longer possess the freedom to do evil and will be perfected in the ability to do good. I think that's an important thing for you to recognize. True freedom is not the ability to do good or evil. That's actually a lesser form of freedom, which leads us to the third point. Who is the most free being in the entire universe? God. Does God have the freedom to sin? No. Does that mean, therefore, that He's not free? Does that mean that God is, therefore, in bondage? No. Freedom inclines toward what is good. True freedom is never going to choose what is evil. The highest, the most ultimate form of freedom is a freedom that inclines toward goodness. So sin is slavery, and thus true freedom consists of the ability to willingly and always do what is right and good. And so looking at the nature of God, recognizing that God has free will, God is the most free being in the world, and yet He never inclines toward sin. He cannot sin, the Bible says. He cannot lie. He cannot change. There are things that God cannot do, but that's not a limitation upon Him. That's actually a sign of His glory. So for us, when we are glorified, we lose the freedom to sin because that's actually a lesser type of freedom. And we're completed in our ability to only do what is 
good. And the last thing that I think is a helpful thought on free will is uh, Jonathan Edwards talked about this in, uh, in a book called uh, the, uh, the Bondage of the Will. And, uh, and so he talked about the nature of our inability. And he said there's a difference between two different types of inability, all right? So I'm going to give you uh, an illustration of that. Imagine, if you will, uh, that I am tied to this chair. Uh, I'm tied to a chair here, uh, and, uh, and you've tied me up tightly, and then you tell me to stand, right? You tell me to stand, and then you punish me because I don't stand. Is that fair? Is that just? No. Now, what if, on the other hand, I'm sitting in this chair, and you tell me to stand, but I really don't like you today. Like, you made me mad some, for some reason, and so I'm just, no. And I just sit there, right? Now can you hold me responsible for not standing? Yeah, right? Because I have a moral inability. Because I so despise you, I so dislike you, I'm so proud, I'm so arrogant, whatever it might be, that I'm not going to stand no matter what. I'm not going to stand. So I, am, I have an inability to stand, but it's a moral inability, not a natural uh, inability. And so I thought that was a helpful uh, way to distinguish the type of inability that we have. Uh, we, we don't possess the freedom to, uh, to incline toward God in our sin. But that's not a natural inability. That's not that we have been tied down. It's a moral inability. It's we are unfree because we are unwilling. We do not desire to incline towards God. We are not uh, we do not delight in Him, and so therefore we freely choose against Him. Okay, that is uh, 50 minutes on total depravity. Pretty depressing, and uh, and so I uh, I want to ask Zach to come up, and we'll do some uh, some Q and A on the topic.